Welcome to We Are Just Christians. Thanks for tuning in today to the show. Really appreciate that. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show, and I'll give you the numbers in just a moment, how you can reach us if you'd like to have a conversation. My name is Mike Schmidt, and with me is Gary Jones. How are you, Gary? I'm doing well this morning, Mike. We're the, we're the elders of the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. I do a lot of the teaching as the preacher here, but uh, we share this radio show, and it's brought to you with the idea of teaching about becoming just a Christian in the 21st century like they were in the first century. And that's why it's called We Are Just Christians. In fact, the website of the church, Gary, is wearejustchristians.com. We've had that for 20-some years, I suppose. Wearejustchristians.com, and you'll find a lot of information there. We'll probably talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But that's the theme of the show, and that's the principle we operate on here at the church on Savona Boulevard. And we invite you to think about these things with us today. Might be a little bit different approach to things than you're used to, but we invite you to think along with us. One of the main purposes we have in this show is to get people to always ask when a religious topic comes up, what does the Bible say about that? And go take a look at that. We got a question a moment, a few moments ago, Gary, in a text I want to deal with just for that in that same way. I, uh, my son-in-law, who I love very much, came up from uh, down south yesterday, and my daughter brought the grandbaby up, and we were visiting, and and um, B- Brian has a uh, Roman Catholic upbringing, but he was asking me, because they, they had been to a church with the baby, uh, like one of these outdoor manger scene things, and, oh, yeah. and they went through the whole process. It sounded pretty interesting the way this church did it. I don't remember all the details, but anyway, he was he was say, asking me kind of like, um, you know, what's the Bible say about Christmas? And, of course, I was happy, and I, I said, well, we can talk about Christmas from the standpoint of, you know, what people say about Christmas. But now, if you want to know what the Bible says about Christmas, which is a more important question, that's a different matter. So we had a little discussion about that back and forth. I think, I think it was interesting. I'm not sure I want to get into that topic this morning, but I'm just saying I thought that was a – I was impressed that, that that was kind of the approach that, that we would take about that. Well, What's more, the scriptures it, say about something, yeah, well, rather more, than what do people think about it's it? It's a more thoughtful approach than you generally encounter, in, in, in my view. Uh, we're here about, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a verse. I, that, I'll go ahead. Like Let too. me give the numbers first, okay. Gary. Because we're going to get started on something here, and Gary and I won't be able to stop. But, uh, <laughs> the numbers to reach the show are 772-260-6120. 772-260-6120. That's wrong. No, no, oh, you, can, my no you can text that number. That, you can text that number. That's my text number, 772-260-6120. In fact, that's how we got the text just before the, we came on the air at that number. That You can also uh, text Gary at 772-260-6220, 260-6220. But the call-in number to reach us live on the air is 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the regular call-in number for WPSL. And Michael there at the station will answer your call and, and hook you up to us so we can have a conversation. We'd like to have you ask us a question or make a comment, whatever's on your mind. doesn't have to be about what we're discussing. 
We promise that we're not going to uh, embarrass you or antagonize you or anything like that. We're, we, we might like to have a discussion. We can go back and forth if you'd like, or you can ask the question and let us answer it. But uh, it's more interesting to make sure we got the right question for you to stay on the air for a moment, if you will. And we'll be able to talk about that. And we promise to give you the last word if we disagree. And so that, that's, the, that's the premise of the show, 772-340-1590. Well, the other premise for the show is, is the quote I want to make that I've made a lot. It, you, you question about what does the Bible say about Christmas. In John 12:48, Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. When you stand before God in the last day, what's going to be the standard by which you're going to be judged? Right. It's going to be the word that Jesus spoke. That's the scriptures, folks, and that's what we're here, here about. Right. That's exactly right. Well, uh, yeah, we've got a, a text about this subject that I brought up about what the Bible says about Christmas, which we might talk about here in a moment. But there's two things that kind of bumped in, in line ahead of that, Gary. One of them was the text that we got, and then you said that you had some material, uh, something uh, that you want to talk about as far well, as well, the Old Testament. So we right, can do both just, of those those things, you know. Well, it's it's about maybe the Bible in general, but it's it's an approach to it that people don't like to think about. So okay. Well, let's let's see if we can grab this text that came in. Uh, and see what people are interested uh, in. He, the question from John is, did Paul ever make it to Rome according to the New Testament, or is that tradition? Secondly, it says he wanted to keep going west to Spain. I think that legend has it that Paul and Peter were caught up in Nero's fire debacle when the city of Rome burned, and he blamed the Christians for it. Uh, well, as far as whether Paul made it to Rome, let's just go to the book of Acts, this, and, and I think we'll let the yeah. Scripture speak to itself. If, if, you, if you want to go into what Roman Catholic tradition says about the life of Peter and Paul, you're going to find a lot of stuff that's not in the Scriptures at that's all, right. which we'll see in a moment. But Paul says in Acts 19 um, that in, in the book in the city of Ephesus, in verse 21, when these things were accomplished, Acts 19.21, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia, which is in Greece, and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul says, middle part of his ministry, when he has been, already been sent by the Spirit across the, from Turkey into Greece, he wants to go back to Jerusalem, to report to the brethren there. And then he says, I want to go to Rome. Well, we find out that I think Paul means by that, I'm going to go to Rome and I'm, I'm going to preach the gospel there. It's all going to be great. He thinks he's going to have the same kind of experience that he had in uh, ha had had so far. Even though he had trouble, uh, you know, he wasn't in bonds. But he was basically sidetracked in his trip to but Rome. What happened, yes, and I guess I got the wrong... Did I, did I get rid of the window here? I did. Uh, but uh, hang on a second. I'll find this. Um, it says here that... Uh, uh, Actually, in Acts, he ends up in the very last in Rome. So Yes. he, he in, and I, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to get there. I'm not really getting there very so, so quickly. I. I, I closed out a window here that I had opened up to, to look at this. But uh, in 
in verse 15 of Romans, uh, Romans 15, I should say, verse 24, that whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and well, be helped there. His arrival so, in Rome is Acts 28 and 11. Right. But he, he thinks he's going to go on to Spain, and that's his purpose, to go on from Rome on to Spain. And yet, and we have no record in the Bible of him ever getting there. Right. We do have record of him getting to Rome. Rome, except he came to Rome, not under the circumstances that he envisioned, but he came to Rome as a prisoner. He had been arrested in Jerusalem uh, by and on false charges brought up by the Judaizing teachers and the, his opponents among the Jews. And finally, at some point, after spending time in jail there, he may, as a Roman citizen, he made an appeal to Caesar, which Roman citizens had a right to do. That, that the one the one uh, Roman guard who had beat him was extremely concerned because he had touched a Roman citizen, which was could cost him his life. Of course, Paul didn't make that happen. But Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. Well, thou then, he has to be taken to Caesar. That takes some time. So they load him on his ship at some point. They have the big storm in Acts 27, nearly a hurricane, get shipwrecked. And you can read all about this in the last couple of chapters of the book of Acts. But he ends up in Rome under house arrest, and de- and there already are Christians in Rome. And uh, he's teaching them as best he can. They're coming and going at some point. He's awaiting his trial before Caesar, and the book just ends. Right. That's, that's So we don't... Huh? That's Acts 28, 17 to the end of the book. Right, and we have no biblical record of the outcome of that trial, of what happened to Paul. I, I would say, Gary, in my reading of different people, of, uh, different scholars over the years, th- there seems to be some indication that Paul was released at, from that imprisonment, was free for a year or two, then imprisoned again and finally executed in about the year 67, 68 A.D. So that, but, but we don't have a record of that in the Bible of his execution. Now, as far as Peter we have being no, in Rome, We have no biblical record of Peter ever getting to Rome. No, there's no record of Peter ever being in Rome. And it's so ironic that Paul fits the, Paul fits the model of a Roman Catholic pope being unmarried or single at least and writing all these books and so forth and being in the city of Rome and yet the Catholic Church has made Peter the Pope, and we have no record of Peter being ever being in Rome, much less, and he's a married man, etc., etc. He, he was the apostle that was openly corrected by the Apostle Paul for his uh, unscriptural sinful behavior. And so this just doesn't sound like a Pope, does it? No, not, not the modern version of a pope. As a matter of fact, if you look at Scripture, uh, Peter is associated with Jerusalem more than any other more city. More than any other city. And now, from the scriptural standpoint, that's his association. And because the Scriptures say that God, more or less, God sent Peter to the Jews. Right, and Paul. And Paul to the Gentiles. And, of course, when you get to the city of Rome, who are you dealing with? Gentiles. Gentiles. And that's the whole point of the gospel spreading from the city of from, from Antioch Jerusalem on to Rome, and then from there as the capital on to the known world. So Paul could say in Colossians 1 that the gospel's been preached to the whole creation, 123, I believe it is. And so we don't have a record. Now, the only reference, Gary, I would say that some appeal to is 1 Peter 5, where Peter writes, 
She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark my son. And some say that Peter is referencing the fact that he is in Babylon and he's with somebody there. She, meaning either the church or some woman that he, that's there, that's elect with them, greet you in First Peter. Uh, that's that's speculation and certainly isn't certain in any well, way. Well, I think those same scholars try to link that Babylon to the Babylon of Revelation. Right, right. So, and so it's obviously a figurative reference, and so we can't say in any definitive way that Peter is in Rome at that point in time. All we have is tradition, which I got no big problem with some traditions, Gary, because they don't seem to have a uh, prejudicial force behind them. Then other traditions seem to be have been have cropped up to buttress some extra biblical or unbiblical doctrine. But basically, have, I'm skeptical of those traditions yeah. that are there to buttress some doctrine that's not found in the Bible. What, what I would say is I have looked and I have not found any extra-biblical writings that confirm that Peter was in Rome or that Paul was ever in Spain. No, yes, and we have no indication from the Bible for sure, much less extra-biblical, that, that Paul made it to Spain and, uh, or that Peter had been in Rome. So it's just odd how so much... This is why... So much is made of that. Yes, that's why we're going to point you to try to give you a Bible answer. You can go to Wikipedia or you can go to, some, you can go to your priest or somebody and you can get another answer. The point we're making with you on this show is if you want to know what the Bible says, then let's look in the Bible. Let's not look in what a council or a creed book or what traditions say. Uh, we're going to base our answer that we're going to give you on the Bible. Now, now to some people, Gary, obviously that's going to be a satisfactory answer. Or they're going to be more like, you know, what I do. I say, well, the Bible says this, tradition says this, you know, and you have to weigh which one you think is you're going to lean on. And you'll see that, and I'm the person that when I think tradition contradicts what I can find in the Bible, I'm going to reject the tradition immediately. And you're, you're the same way, Gary. Right. And I, I, I would encourage our listeners to be the same. Well, but the, other people want to blend those. The Roman Catholic Church says it takes the Bible and tradition to know what's true. That's something that we reject outright on this program. Yes, we're not going to make any absolutely. bones about it or make any apology for it. We reject outright that it takes the Bible and tradition to know what to believe. And even among so-called Protestants, of which we don't really consider ourselves Protestants, we consider ourselves just Christians, but even among so-called Protestants, a lot of people lean for their teachings and their beliefs on what tradition says. And they're talking about what the people who wrote after New Testament times, they often are called church fathers, Antonicene fathers, or before the Council of Nicaea in 323 or so, 315, three, I can't I always get confused. 323, I think, are the Edicts of Toleration, or it's 323 and the, and the Council of Nicaea is in three, I, I get those two confused, but somewhere around 324, I think, is the Council of Nicaea. The people that wrote before that, who were not apostles, but left records of the early church, uh, those are often called church fathers, Antonicene fathers. And there's ones that are later than that, like Augustine and others, who are... And you have to be careful yeah, of all of them. Because yes, not, all of them are not... None of those men are inspired. They don't right. have the Holy Spirit. Their books and writings were not kept by early Christians as if they were inspired. Okay? 
though a lot of their, their writings were rejected writings, as being inspired. A lot of their writings contain parts. They're they're true. Sure, we have quotations from them. We can reproduce the whole Bible from Almost what the Antonicene fathers wrote. Yes, or at least the whole New Testament. Uh, maybe the whole Bible. So I'm not saying you just throw away everything they say, but you got to remember, even the early church did not consider those men to be be the apostles, and they they contradict each other. Yes. And things like that. So we only put a very limited amount of st- put stock in them. We only put a very limited amount of stock in what they wrote. And for example, Augustine said many things, good things, but he also promoted uh, the doctrine of of depravity and original sin and all this kind of thing. Uh, at least some people say he does. And you, I know you get on down further. You do uh, uh, one of the early fathers, Origen. Uh, I think a lot of what Origen said is just completely off the mark. He is right. more pagan than Christian oftentimes. And, and one of them, I think Irenaeus, is used to date the book of Revelation. And when you get dig into what he said about that, turns out it's third-hand information. Well, the, the, once again, Gary, the tradition says that the Apostle John had a younger disciple. When John was old in the book of Revelation, in, if it was written in the 90s, and John died in probably 95 A.D., before 100, shortly before 100, as an old man. Uh, he had a younger disciple named Polycarp, I believe. Yes. Who he knew, and Polycarp references John. And then I think Polycarp's disciple was Irenaeus, of whom we have many writings. So there's, like you say, a couple of generations in there. There's a couple of generations. But in Paul there. also warned that after his departure, things would change in Acts 20. So you're already seeing the departures. You can't take what they say as if it's from the New Testament. We don't base our practice on what they did in the 2nd or 3rd century. I know we go, well, they were doing this in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. That's nice. It's interesting. Maybe informative sometimes. But we're going to base our practice at this church on what they did in the New Testament. Uh, By the way, that's Eusebius was the one whose quote is often used to date the book. he He got it from Irenaeus. Arrhenius had to get it from Polycarp. Yes, and so, so Eusebius, is the, Eusebius is a historian who wrote yeah. a, a church history, as it were, yeah. up to that point. And it's very good and interesting. I'm just telling you, I'm not, I don't consider it to be inspired. You shouldn't either. And you've got to take it that way. And, yeah. and even if we learn from it, we have to come to understand that um, what we need to base our practice and belief on is what we find in Scripture. And so that's what this show's about. That's how you become that's how you become just a Christian is you base your practice on what you find that they did in the first century. Let me quick give the numbers again, Gary, and I don't know if that answers the question about as good as we can do right now, unless there's if you if the texture has a little more to uh, comment about that, we'd be glad to hear it. You can get a hold of us at you can text us at um, Well some sometimes Mike it's just necessary to say the Bible doesn't give you that information. That sometimes is the only answer. It doesn't give you any information, yes. Yeah, it just doesn't say one way or the other right. about this information. And you've got to be willing to say, okay, that's that's as far as it goes. Uh, by the way, the texture says remind people about the 3rd century and the 1st century. Okay, yes, that is a problem because if I speak about the 20th century, I'm talking about the 1900s, right? Yes. The 21st century is the 2000s. So uh, the... Uh, the third century is the 200s, right. I guess you'd say, all right? And it's, it's uh, 201 to 300 is the third century. And so 
you know, you got to always, it's always a problem. You got to subtract the one from where you are yeah. to get the right. The 1800s is the 19th century, right. which is so hard. It's, it, it's you got to learn this and just kind of tell yourself one of those things. I have to remind myself every time I hear it or read it. Okay, now, on the other side of Christ, it goes the other way. So, yes, it goes back the other direction, and you got to remember that too. It's very confu- can be confusing. So stop and think about it when you hear people refer to that. But we we base our we try uh, our attempt is, and whether we always accomplish it, I can't say that. But I can we can I can say what our intention is to base our practice and belief on what's found in the first century. That is, before the apostles all died around the year 100, all the apostles were gone. And Paul gives a warning in Acts 20 and 28 that after that time that things would change and grievous wolves would enter in and began to, uh, the church would fall away. So I'm suspicious of the things in those other centuries because the Bible warns me that things were going to begin to change when the apostles died. And, and they were beginning. They were beginning to have some problems. Even well, sure. Paul wrote about while he was still alive in right. the first half of the first century. That's correct. All right. So, uh, in any event, if if you'd like to call in or text in about that, uh, uh, you can reach us here on We Are Just Christians at seven seven two two three four zero fifteen ninety seven seven two three four zero one five nine zero, or you can text us at seven seven two two six zero. 6120 or 6220 are the text numbers. All right, Gary, um, you mentioned that you had... Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about how to look at Scripture uh, in in terms of most people that I've come across don't like to study history. Me, I like to study history. Yeah, I taught but, history in junior high for a couple of years at private school. It was a lot of fun getting kids interested in at that age in history. And, and one of the things that I found, this is this is what I found for me, it's it's easier for me to study thinking of both the Old and New Testaments in a way as as history. But their history of what, basically? And I, I wanted to say that there are three things, that Im- three promises that come out of the book of Genesis that God made to Abraham. Uh, he promised Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 and 2. says, I will make you a great nation in verse, verse 2. Okay. Okay. Uh, in Genesis, Genesis 12 is a, a seminal chapter in the Old Testament, right, in the right. Bible. Right. Yes, he says, uh, beginning at beginning of now, the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be blessed. blessed. Uh, in Genesis 13, he says, uh, he tells him to look at all the land around him, in, in basically verse 15. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. Now, these were essentially unconditional promises given to Abraham. But then later on, he says, and, and he says all of these things, I'm just picking out. He says this more than once, Mike. These are just sample scriptures, okay? If you read the book of Genesis through these chapters, you'll, you'll see these come up again. And he says in Genesis 22, when he sacrifices Abraham, once Abraham raises the knife and God says, no, don't kill him, he says in verse 12, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything for, uh, to him for now I know that you fear God. And he goes on to say in verse 17, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is up in the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There are three promises. Make him a nation, 
give him a land, and in his seed all nations would be blessed. Now we find out, Paul writes later, that that seed which, through which all nations will be blessed is Christ. So what we're seeing in both the Old and the New Testaments is the God fulfilling those promises to Abraham. And you need to start thinking about as you read all these different books, which are not necessarily in chronological order, uh, you need to think about it as how is, how is God planning on doing this for Abraham and completing this, and it's completed. Abraham died before all of this was done. Right. He died not having received the promise. He died not Many having, right, not having received these things. We go on to Daniel, and there's references made in Daniel to a kingdom. Basically, the Christ that is to come will set up a kingdom which will, will not be destroyed. And he's, we're told, basically a political roadmap through history to when that kingdom will, will begin to be. And so what you're seeing as you go through the history of the kings and Babylon and the return and many of the things that occur in those books, you're seeing the fulfillment of these promises. And if you'll think about the Bible in that way and begin to try to put things in, in an order, and, and we have some timeline material that we'd be happy to send you if you want to, want to give it, want, want to look at it. Detailed timelines of all, where all these events in the Bible fit into world history, right? Yeah, fit into and, and world history. major kingdoms. And so that's what I'm trying to say. This is, this is all I wanted to present was start thinking of the Bible in, term, in those terms. A uh, couple things about that, Gary, when I, I, really, I, I think you're exactly correct is that uh, this is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity and, I guess, Judaism before that from all other world religions, is that it is based upon the actual intervention of God in history, and it says history has a purpose. There, there's a purpose to history and events. Exactly. Other religions, there's no real end or tele the fancy word is teleological purpose to history. There's not a goal in mind. It's just... History is just going on, or time just moving. But with Christianity, there's a purpose, and, and Judaism before, saying God is going to intervene in history. He's going to bring about these things through his providence and through his power to suit his will to save men. And then the unveiling of the Old Testament, or the unraveling of it, is to understand how all these things actually happen. So God did, did intervene in the lives of these Old Testament people. Careful. Yes. characters and he did intervene in bringing Christ into the world and then the history of the church as it unfolds in the book of Acts on down to our present time. God is active in that process. It's something and, and he says then in the end there's an end to history. All of this is going to be for the purpose of God's glory when he's done with things he's going to bring it all to an end and roll up the heavens and the earth like an old garment dispose of them. But his people are going to continue. But Christianity puts itself in a unique position of saying, you can test the veracity of these things by what the prophets have said, by what has already occurred in history, and when this happened. It even pinpoints when Christ was coming. And it pinpoints it ahead of time. Ahead of time, it's telling you these things. And that Christ, here's the difference. Maybe I'm, I'll say it this way. Christianity is not about being nice to people and saying the right things and, and uh, doing these things. Christianity is about historical events that took place 
based upon God's prophetic intervention in the world and the real people. And, and it's based upon the fact that in history, a man named Jesus, appointed by God as his Messiah, lived and died and rose again the third day. Other religions like Confucianism, they're based on nice sayings and wisdom. You get Hinduism, it's, there's no purpose to the world's existence besides, you know, uh, some grand end of everybody, everything achieving nirvana at some unspecified point in time. It, they involve no historical verification. There are no prophecies. There's no one living in history that matters. Uh, even Islam is about it, it, the prophet Muhammad is not Jesus Christ and not God. So there's just differences in these world religions. And Christianity puts itself at the peril of being tied to history. And the history has a meaning and a purpose. Uh, that's why Christians, for good or ill, have so been involved, Gary, so much in useless prophetic speculation. Well, they're not, trying to figure out when this history is going to come to an end with their speculations that they try to get out of the Bible uh, without any merit or fruit, in our opinion, to figure out when it's going to end, and God didn't design it that way. He didn't design it that we could figure it all out. Well, most of it comes from a... a, a disconnect in, in what they're looking at as far as future events and what and, the, and a misunderstanding of history or an ignorance of history in that they don't recognize the events the Bible was talking about. Yes. They, that, they don't recognize that the fulfillment has already happened and what right. it is saying. Yes, that's correct. So, it, to understand this, you have to begin to look at it in a little bit different way than you would normally from an ordinary history book, but it helps you if you begin to look. The timeline is one of the best things. And unfortunately on the radio, I don't have a screen where I can show you the timeline. And it's a little difficult to describe in words and the detail that we would need to really understand it. But we'd be happy to send you that if, if you'd just right. let us know. We have simple ones that you can start with and we have complicated ones that will give you all the detail that you want. It's just but basically, Mike, what I, what I want this is the basis for our faith. It's, it's based upon a historical event of the, of the birth, death, and crucifixion and resurrection of, of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, from there, you can go forward or backward, but that's the central event of history. Exactly. And uh, whether it occurred at the beginning of time or toward the end of time, we don't know. But that's the central event of history, according to the Bible. Uh, uh, John, the texture says that... Uh, what makes it hard that the, the book Bible is a group of books, which is correct. It's not a single book, chapter one, chapter two. It's a group of books, and they group they, they are grouped by, uh, you know, sometimes by chron chronology, sometimes by category, whether it's lit wisdom literature or poetry or whatever it may be. A and uh, you got to understand the chronology in a different way from just the order of the books in the Bible. And sometimes it, it is difficult to match up exact dates in the Bible with extra-biblical events. For one thing is, we, we, we act like, well, we know when all these extra-biblical events occurred. Well, we don't know that much about them either. You know, when was Rome founded? Or when did, when did the Persian, what exact date did the Persian Empire do this or that or the other? We have rough guesses about that because the calendars don't always match up. So my, my son, son-in-law asked me yesterday, so what year was Jesus born? Yeah, we, well, I, I told him, I think, between 4 and 3 B.C. 
You know, well, that's a startling answer to most people, Gary, because they assume that B.C. means before Christ and A.D. means the year of our Lord. So he was born in zero or one A.D. Well, history doesn't say that. We have we know we have an error by I think Dionysius the scribe a, a few centuries after Christ when the calendars changed of three or four years, and we also know from history when this census that the Bible mentions takes place, and we know when Quirinius was governor of Syria and Caesar oh, Augustus. We have rough ideas of when those were, you know, not exact dates, but pretty good ideas, and so we can match up the birth of Christ to that time period real cl pretty closely. Now, here's the thing. The Bible is putting itself at peril when it mentions that because someone could try to disprove that, you see. And so uh, that's the, but but doesn't matter if he's born in 3 B.C., according to our time period, or B.C.E., as they now say, before oh, the common which, era. Which I object to, by the way. Well, yes. Uh, I, I, before Christ has now become B.C.E., or before the common right, era. Right. Of course, the common era is still the age of Christ, but that's another whole uh, can of worms, Gary. Uh, but, but the point is, does it matter? No, what matters is that the Bible says this happened. And I, I read a lengthy article this week again. I've seen this so many times. I've even preached about this before, about the extra-biblical references that prove that Jesus Christ existed. Maybe we should do a show on that. It's kind of boring because, once again, it's history and Suetonius and Flavius, Josephus, and all this stuff, you know. Pliny, you got to get into all of those kind of people to, to prove that, yes, Jesus is a real character of history, even outside the Bible he's mentioned. Okay, and so... But even though he's mentioned outside of the Bible, anything in detail about his life is only is contained, in the Bible. Is only yes. contained in the scripture. Sure. So if I'm you not saying if, that your your belief in Jesus depends on the scripture, it doesn't depend on oh, historical. Well, documents. you you can believe that a man named Crestus or Jesus lived. The question is, who is he? Yes. And and that you're going to have to find in the scripture. You see, you're going to have to find that. You're going to have to find that in the scripture. I think Siri's trying to tell me, uh, you know. Something about Jesus here. I must have bumped my phone. I'm not sure Siri knows how to find out about the you know the birth of Jesus. But in any event, do you know Siri is just a housewife who lives well, in Atlanta. I don't know how she so answers all those phone calls. What what we have to realize is the dates of historical events. I have a tolerance to them. I would say, in other words, we don't know those right down to the very minute or the day. In a lot of cases. Yeah. Some of them we know better than others. Sometimes you can vector it in. Like the, like the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, we're pretty sure when that last destruction was within a, a few weeks because of Babylonian records as well as the Bible or, records. Or even the, C even the 70 A.D. destruction by the Romans because they were pretty good records. But then there are other events that we don't know quite as well. You also have to factor in that a lot of scholars since these 1800s are automatically a priori without any other justification going to always shift dates of the prophets to make these not prophets. In other words, Isaiah, from what ha what we have known for centuries and, and understood at the time period, the Jews believe he lived in the 700s B.C. But because, because he made prophecies that didn't occur for 150 or 200 years after his death, 
the more liberal scholars, I'll call, that have to shift his existence to, to after, that time period the event. because they reject the idea of divine prophecy outright. So without any other evidence, they just say, well, he couldn't have written it. He couldn't have written this in 700 A.D. because his prophecy is so accurate that he couldn't have known it ahead of time. Well, of course, that's the whole point. Even so if you the, just read stuff off the Internet by these so-called scholars without knowing what their presuppositions are about these dates and people, you, you'll be misled, I believe. Exactly. And, and that's, a, that's a fundamental problem. Uh, there, there is a question about, for example, when the date of the Exodus was. <coughs> I don't know that there's quite as much uh, presupposition about that, but there's a couple different dates of the Exodus. I happen to think probably it occurred around... 1450 to 1500 B.C. Or, or who was the pharaoh in Egypt at the time? We don't know for sure about that. No, we get, we're getting better a, ideas all the time about who that was. Well, there's a lot of disagreement among scholars about the, the pharaohs and their dates and when they were. That, that, Outside the Bible, without yes. the Bible even being involved in it, right. there's disagreement about that. So but, uh, many of these things we don't know for sure. Uh, so don't get discouraged by that, but understand that this is generally a history. I have come to the conclusion that I, I trust the Bible for history more than I do a lot of the historical scholars that I read. Well, I think you, in the long run, you won't be disappointed in that. In the well, short run, you might look bad because you say, well, I believe what the Bible says in spite of what they say. But uh, you can give the example of, uh, as I've done many times here in sermons, illustrations of the scholars in the, in the 1800s, just laughing out loud at the Bible and Isaiah mentioning Sargon, who he was, because he wasn't in their list of, of kings, kings of Assyria. Then well, all of a sudden they find now him. we've dug up his palace, and I've seen I've seen the images of him and his gods in, in, on display in Chicago with my own eyes. Uh, they they don't go back and correct themselves, but those who believe that Sargon existed as an Assyrian monarch, in well, spite of what the critics were saying during their lifetime were proven to be correct. Well, even in my lifetime, the critics were saying David, there was no evidence that King David of Israel ever existed. Correct. And now they found, guess what? Letters to David at about the right time period. Some some of his other official seals and things like that. Now, uh, Textor mentions here the same thing is true with Mark, the book of Mark written in AD 70 because Jesus mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, that's true. That's why, from what I learned in, in uh, going to college and studying the Bible in, uh, from my professors was that the book of Mark was one of the earliest written Gospels. It was an early Gospel. Well, the, consent, the, the scholars today, a lot of them will tell you, no, it's late. Why do they do that? Because they found some manuscript evidence? No. They do that because there's very specific prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which didn't occur till A.D. 70. So Mark couldn't have been written in A.D. 50, because it pre- it's predicting an event with real clarity that happened in AD 70. So they say it has to happen after after 70. They have no historical reason to say that. Or even They're saying it because they don't believe it can be inspired. Or even any linguistic reason. There are right. a lot of the Old Testament books that linguistically are, are dated early. Yet, again, the same thing because they prophesy events that occurred later you get this de facto shift of the date. Yeah, so, so you have to know the presuppositions of the people that are, that are looking. The same thing happens with people looking at bones and artifacts in the ground. You know, bones are bones. It's the presuppositions that you link it all together to say 
this is that, this is the other, uh, and this is old. This is a this is a uh, pre this is prehistoric, or this is a uh, pre. Uh, what, what word am I looking for, Gary? Uh, this is a primitive man. This is a more advanced man, and we're doing that based upon our analysis of whether the skulls look like European white males and so forth, because the others look kind of primitive in our view, you know, but they don't know. They don't know what those people were like, or whether they were extinct apes, or whether they were humans like us. Uh, they don't know that Neanderthals are not like us, just looked different, and most of them have, have passed out of existence as far as how they look. We carry, some people carry their DNA, some don't. If, if you presume, for example, that Neanderthals are a precursor to man and not human, then you can say, oh, see, that proves evolution, that we came. If you don't assume that, which you don't have any real reason to assume it or not, then you say, well, they're just a different variety of human beings. They were like us, only they were maybe taller with a bigger brain pan. They had a more uh, a different shape of a skull, but they were human. I think the same thing is true of Cro-Magnon man. But it depends on the presupposition you go into when you start interpreting the bones. Because okay. nobody was there to Nobody us. was there to say. Right? And, and there were no writings recorded or anything like that to even have any kind of guidance. There that. are so many cases of where they found different types of DNA and soft tissue in dinosaur excavations, of what they would call dinosaur, that they have simply dismissed or laid up to an error because the presupposition says that these dinosaurs couldn't have existed during uh, recently enough to have left any kind of DNA or soft tissue. So they ignore the evidence before them in many cases because the presupposition says these existed 300 so. I read an arc about that this week about some find that they made and they're having to rethink when they did it and there's a big dispute because uh, they just didn't think these two different kinds of animals could ever have existed at the same time. Why do they think that? Because they've got a, a chart, a time scale that they made up, not based on... They're not willing to change the chart based upon the new evidence that arises, okay? Well, and, and challenge their own presuppositions as often as they should. One of the things that I read about the geologic time scale is basically by dating things in the layers or how far down it is, that geologic time scale was developed back in the mid-1800s, the 19th century, and hasn't changed to this day. And yet we're learning that events happen catastrophically. Things don't just gradually occur. But uh, locally on the, on the planet, things can happen very catastrophically and quickly. And layers can be put down, you know, o virtually overnight. And yet... That geologic time scale is the criteria for dating everything that we find. Right. And it's based upon gradua gradual change, and it's based upon what I, what they call uniformitarianism. Uh, uniformitarianism. That all the processes that we see today and how we measure them can be extrapolated back in time all the way back. And that whatever you see today, the same time scale can be used to say carbon-14 decayed that way, sedimentation occurs at this weight. And the truth is, the, the ones who are the true experts know that that isn't necessarily true. It's just that they don't have a better system to deal with it. They don't have a better way to deal with it than that. Now, Gary, we do have a texture wanting to talk about 
<laughs> the birth of Christ as far as some of the, uh, let's see what it says. Okay. About the whether the shepherds were in the fields and whether Jesus could be born in December. Okay, uh, so let's go to Luke. I guess we'll have to go to that. I, I, I had saw this article this week called Merry Christ Myths. Christ, not Christmas, Christ <laughs> Myth. And it says, um, the point of the article is not to attack Christmas, I don't think. And he makes that point. I'm not, I, we're not going to attack Christmas here. But, but the, once again, the theme of the show is, what does the Bible say? Let's be just a Christian. And so that will affect what you do. I, I just want to warn people out there. You shouldn't take for granted that what you're hearing and seeing in, in the church that you go to this week or the next couple weeks with all the Christmas shows going on are found in the Bible, that the things that they are discussing or the way they present it is found in the Bible, because you would be greatly mistaken. Are the wise men going to the manger? Yeah, here, here are some true or false questions. See what you think. True or false? The Bible says the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph to inform him that Mary was with child. Don't think it says that. But uh, true or false, the Bible says that, the, that three wise men came to the manger to worship and give gifts to Jesus. True or false? That's false. It just says wise yeah. men. The, the Bible says that an unknown number of wise men came to the manger. It doesn't say anything about how many came, whether known or not known. And did the wise men come to the manger? And that's the false. answer is no. That wise men did not come to the manger. Okay. Uh, the Bible. Uh, the The Bible says a bright star appeared in the sky to lead the shepherds to the manger, which is what you see in all these displays. The answer is no. no. The star did not appear to the shepherds. The Bible says a bright star appeared in the sky and led the wise men to the manger. The answer is no. The wise men were never led to the manger. They were led to a house where Jesus and Mary and Joseph were living at the time, possibly two years later. Um, the Bible says the shepherds and the wise men were present on the night of Jesus' birth, like you see in the manger scenes. The answer is no. It doesn't say that at all. The Bible says an innkeeper told Mary and Joseph there was no room in the inn, and thus Jesus was born in a manger. And there was no innkeeper, okay, in the Bible. We got him as the bad guy that Grinch that stole Christmas, you know, because he's a bad guy. Right. And he, there's, that's not in the Bible at all. So how'd you do? Well, this guy says here, um, if you answered any of the questions with a true, you were mistaken. Every statement is false for one reason or another, but you need to open the Bible and check it for yourself, okay? And there are a couple different accounts in Matthew and Luke of the birth of Christ as going this far back. Uh, Luke and John, you know, I mean, uh, Mark and John treat it differently and give genealogies differently. But those are two basic accounts. When you put them together, you, you see that our, our account of what we have in our manger scenes and in churches, our Christmas myth, doesn't match up with that. I don't... I don't know what great spiritual harm comes from that, Gary, but it's a principle that we ought to we ought to be we ought to know what the Bible says about it and, exactly. and believe that. And secondly, what does the Bible say that the church should do about the birth of Christ as far as worship and work? What should we do about the birth of Christ? And the answer is nothing. Nothing as far as the church service is concerned. And and uh, doesn't tell us to celebrate. Is Christmas in the Bible? No, Christmas is not in the Bible. 
the birth of Christ is in the Bible. But, Christ but just mass, as I just showed you, Christ the birth of Christ is different than what we call Christmas or Christ's math is different from that. And the holiday that people celebrate every year about the birth of Christ is not found in the Bible. Now, you're going to have to make up your own mind what you're going to do about that. But just be clear about that. Now, I know that some people have such a strong reaction here, they probably already clicked the radio off. These people don't even believe in the birth of Christ. You're wrong about that. We do. We don't believe that we know what to do about that from the Bible, and so we don't practice any customs or traditions from outside the Bible with regard to the birth of Christ in our church services. You want to have a Christmas tree? You want to keep a day once a year to remember the birth of Christ? That's fine. That's not a problem. I'll ask you now, a there's a positive then. side to this, too. How, when was Christ born? Well, we can come to that in a moment, but go ahead. I was going to ask you, if, if the star didn't guide the shepherds to the manger, how did they know where to go? The shepherds? Well, the angels told them to go into town right. and find the manger. Right. The angels the told angels them to told go, them go to, to Bethlehem. Go. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Right. So they were told where to go. Yes. They were told I, I where to go by the, by, the, by the angels where to go. The the wise men were guided to Jerusalem area by a star at some point later because they were astrologers, Gentiles. And then they went and asked Herod or the Jews, where is this king that's been born? They figured he knew. Well, he didn't know. He asked the Jewish scholars and they said, well, Micah says he'd be born in Bethlehem, which is right over there, about six miles away. So Herod says, well, when you find him, you come and tell me. Well, of course, the angel warned them not to go tell Herod. And that's why at some point later, Herod realized, well, they didn't come back. And so he went in the village and killed all the male children under two years old. Well, why did he pick two years? Most people think because he, that's about how long it must have been since this child was born. So that's not a manger scene with the wise men going to the manger. The only reason they get three wise men is because he had three gifts that were given. And, you know, tradition, Gary, Roman Catholic tradition even gives names to them and makes them an Oriental, a black, and a white person. You know, makes them three races, and they, and they are given names and all that kind of that None of that is in the Bible. Oh, by the you way, can believe what you want about it, but don't say the Bible teaches that. By the way, if you want to read the account of the shepherds, it's in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through about 20. If you want to read the account of the shepherds. Right. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, gives you the account of the shepherds. Right. Uh, so the, the point of the whole, the, all the point of this is that uh, when, when you are a church that's going to practice what the Bible says, then you're, you're not going to find these things in there. And it's ironic to me. I'll tell you one thing that does bother me, though, Gary, about it, is that people get more upset about this kind of thing than they do the fact that they may they may not know or be practicing what the Bible says. They get more upset about someone saying, well, that does not, that's not in the Bible than they do about anything else. They get more upset if you challenge their tradition than they would if you were even teaching something false from the Bible. My friends, uh, that is a problem that you ought to consider. Uh, what, what you're getting upset about. Are you upset because people aren't teaching and believing what's in the Bible? Or are you upset because someone is, is questioning 
what can only be considered a tradition that you've been handed by somebody. And uh, that's a problem that we've got to consider. Now, <clears throat> I think it, it's just il illustrative, though, of this fact that modern Christianity, and it's been going on for a few centuries, has gotten away from the basic teaching of, of scriptural principles about things. And so we're more concerned about keeping holidays of which the New Testament says nothing. There is not a mention at all, and you can go way back in history to see this. Even historians like Philip Schaff will tell you that in the early church there is no record of any of the churches keeping any annual festivals of any kind. We get more, more concerned about keeping holidays than we do about what the Bible actually says about how to be saved, what we ought to believe about the birth of Christ or anything else. Or how to carry on our lives. How to, how to live our lives before God. And so it, then it becomes, once you set up that holiday, then it becomes, well, uh, as long as I go to church at Christmas and Easter, I'm good to go. And you got those kind of, those kind of folks. I'm glad when they come. We have that here. We have people that come, and we'll have a bigger crowd on Christmas morning or Easter morning than we would otherwise. I'm happy about that. I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and berate those folks. But I don't think that's the answer to how to be saved, coming to church on Christmas and Easter. But once you set up this extra-biblical system, then it turns out that way that you, you, you've, got to continue to, uh, you've got to continue to promote that holiday as a big deal. And so most churches right now are caught up in that, in that whole process of Christmas things. And they, have, they don't go back to the Bible before they begin to do the things that they do. They don't go back to the Bible and say, well, what does the Bible say we should be doing about this? Uh, by the way, it's just a coincidence here. Maybe, maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe it was planned. The account of the wise men is given in Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1 through 12. So Luke 2, 1 through, I think, 20, and Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and you get the account of the wise men. Right, right. Um, you know, there's a positive side to this, Gary. People say, well, you, uh, I think my son-in-law asked me, so when was Jesus born? Well, I don't know. I don't know from history, and I don't know from the Bible. We only have, but was he born on December 25th? I, I think that's an extremely unlikely date. How did they come up with December 25th? There's almost universal agreement, even among people that keep Christmas a religious holiday, that December 25th was not set by some, uh, set by the Bible, but it was set by a pagan holiday around that time of year that had to do with the changing of the seasons and the and the winter solstice and so forth when the sun is the furthest away from the earth or the earth is the furthest away from the sun I should say and the Romans had a holiday and so the, uh, some of the other pagans about around that time of the year they recognized this and so they had these festivals of lights to bring the sun back and I'm, I'm generalizing but most scholars will tell you that's how Christmas got set at that time and uh it wasn't said any other way. But what there is some evidence in the Bible as to possibly when Christ was born. Well, I think it has to do with Mary and uh, or Jesus Elizabeth. and John and Mary and Elizabeth. And basically 
there is some timing there right. relative to Ma- Jewish Ma- Mar- Yes, Mary's cus- cousin, Elizabeth, is the mother of John the Baptist. She was an older woman and hadn't had a child. Her husband was a priest who was, at that time, in serving in the temple at a certain time in his life, maybe a one or two weeks of in his lifetime he got to serve there. The Bible says he's in the course of Abijah, Matthew does, and he was in the temple when the angel came and said, your wife's going to have a baby. Well, we know that we know from Second Chronicles that the, that uh, twenty four that the that the course of Abijah was eighth in the order of the priests that served in the temple in each year. We know from Josephus, the historian, uh, that that would have been uh, around March fifteenth in our calendar, around that time, around the time of what we might call Easter, that uh, that that he would have been born. So we know that John was born probably around the time of uh, we would call in the spring in in September. And then uh, Jesus was born, according to the Bible, six months later, which would make the birth of Jesus, if you use this chronology, sometime around September 15th. Well, that just seems like an odd date until you realize, because we're so unfamiliar being Christians, that's the time of... Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle is when they dwelt in the tent, and it corresponds to God saying that God is with us, he is with us, and it corresponds to John saying that he come and dwelt among men in a tent, or tented with us in John 1. Okay, The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. So there is reason to think that Jesus was born on September 15th or so, around that time. Now, ironically, we just got a couple, about a minute or two left, Gary. Ironically, a guy named Bob Inyard says, if you take his birth at being September 15th approximately, that would have made his conception sometime in late December of the year before. So it's possible that he was conceived around the time of what we would call Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights, as the Jews put it, that they were keeping of the dedicate, the feast of the, as John calls it in John 10, the dedication of the temple, that they were keeping that feast, and that's the time when Christ was conceived. He was born the following September, which corresponds to the Feast of Tabernacles. He was killed at the Feast of Passover, right, in the spring. And so forth. So there's Bible basis for this. All, all these things related to the Jewish holidays that they were given yes. to keep. And the holidays mean something. Our, our time is gone today. Appreciate you listening. Uh, want to encourage you to take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. You'll find recordings of this show there and, and also the, all the sermons here at the church that you might be interested in. Uh, you can even search by topic there. A lot of other information. It's, it's certainly not a denominational website. Wearejustchristians.com. We'd like to invite you to come and worship with us. Come and see. You need to come and visit for a few weeks and find out what's going on here. And we meet at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard in Port St. Lucie, 2196. That's at the corner of California and Savona. On the southwest corner behind the shopping center, you'll find the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. And we'd invite you to come. People from all over the world come here, all kind of families, single people. We'd love to have you. You'll come, and we're not going to ask you for money. You're just going to find a warm welcome. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you, and tune in again next week. Open my cup, let it overflow, open my cup.